You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement, or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. On radio, on podcast, online, wherever you get the Get Ready for the Future show, welcome in to another edition. My name is Scott Inman, along with Janet Walker, today answering your questions, as always, on the show and helping guide you to discover, protect, and share true financial independence. That's what this show is about. That's what Genwell Financial Advisors is about, leading their clients in that direction, whatever uh, place on that journey you currently sit in. There's probably a question over the next 30 minutes that might apply to your life, and there is always an advisor ready to talk to you uh, from GenWealth. Well, I was looking at that open on the video version of the show, Janet, and I saw it was really well, really well produced, I should say, yes, by the way, by I'm our marketing very, team. Yeah, very proud of our team. I like it a lot. I, I did notice in one of the shots I was taking my glasses off of the uh, desk and putting them on, and, and it wasn't that long ago we shot that video, and I'm thinking, I don't really take them off that I, much anymore. <laughs> I remember that stage, and I'm no longer in it. Yeah, yes. it used to be take them off, put them on, take them off, put yeah. them on, and no, it's just they they stay on now. Yeah, yeah. the '70s song says time keeps on ticking. It, yeah, it certainly indeed it does. It certainly does. So making a plan for financial independence, no better time than now because you're going to be farther down the road tomorrow. So let's get in today. We've got some great questions about weddings. We've got questions about reverse mortgages. We've got questions about timing on 401k contributions. So we're all over the map today. Let's dive in with Amy in Russellville. How do you recommend dealing with short and midterm savings that don't have tax advantaged accounts like saving for a child's wedding or your next car? Should you invest or high yield save? Amy, thanks for the question. I think the first thing you got to ask yourself is what is the timeline here? Everything when it comes to making decisions about how to invest, whether to invest, whether to keep principal safe or whether to risk it should be determined on a time horizon basis. Now, retirement is one of those things that's a little easier to deal with, right? If you're 35, Amy, and you know you want to retire at 65, you know your time horizon, right? You've got 30 years. It can be a little more difficult when you're talking about saving for a child's wedding or even your next car. Okay. So we realize there's a little bit of wiggle yeah. room you have to have there. And and even I'll circle back to the retirement aspect because a lot of people coming up to their time of retirement, let's say they're 63 and they're going to retire at 65. Then they're thinking, I have a short-term time horizon. You do for some of those dollars, but some of them, even then you're not going to use for another 20 or more years in retirement. So there's still, even then some portion that's going to be short-term and some portion that's long-term, but let's Get out of the retirement realm for just a minute and talk about, uh, as Amy has asked, about vehicles and weddings. Um, so let's talk about that time horizon that Scott mentioned. So on a vehicle, how how soon before you're going to need to replace that vehicle? Uh, in in my family, uh, our phrase is we keep until the until the wheels fall <laughs> off. You know, um, we have a tendency to do that. Our last vehicle we kept right out a decade, and we've we've done that a couple of times. Uh, not to say that we do it ev with every single vehicle, but for us, it usually is quite a bit of time. And so what we'll do is create what's called a sinking fund for that. And basically, while we are driving a paid for vehicle, 
we are making a car payment to ourselves and just stacking that money up. And for us, we're doing it in a, in a savings um, type of vehicle. So she asked about a high yield savings vehicle. That has been our choice. But if you're saving for something that is for sure a longer term than a five-year period, then you may want to actually invest. But we usually don't do that with vehicle money because it might be shorter than you think. I'll, I'll use an example. In our family, we were stacking money up years ago for a future vehicle, and then my husband got T-boned. And the future vehicle that was going to be, you know, still another three or four years down the road all became a next week vehicle just at the drop of a hat. And so you never really know in in that realm how soon you're talking about. So I would tend personally to go to more of a high yield savings for that, even if you think your time horizon is a little bit longer because you don't want to risk the fluctuation in the market. Yeah, and I would agree with that too, especially in the environment we're in right now. It can be a lot easier to yeah. be satisfied with a high yield savings yeah, when interest yeah, rates are you know, sure. north of 5%. So I think, Amy, when we're talking about the car, that's a great bit of advice there to think about that in high yield savings because of the unknown potential of uh, the time horizon being collapsed into a shorter time frame. And I love the idea of putting a payment uh, into it so that you can kind of predict where you're going to be at a, at a certain point in the future. Now, I, I, I'll talk a little bit more about vehicles before we transition on this. Um, we just bought a vehicle for uh, my husband and we had the, the full amount put back to be able to pay it in cash. And we've done this at other times in the past. You often, if you're buying new, and and we've bought used a lot as well, but on this one, we wound up buying new, and you often will actually get a better deal if you finance it for a period of time. So we financed it for just a few months. In fact, we just just paid it off. Even though we had all of that money, it saved us what I'll just call a comma check, meaning it, it saved us enough money in the price of the overall deal just to finance it for a few months, which feels really weird when you have yeah. the money to pay it. Yep. Um, and just the way I was raised, you know, don't have a car payment, but you're kind of playing the game there a little bit uh-huh. as well. So. I've, I, I've The last couple of cars I bought, I've been flabbergasted that cash is no longer king. It's not. When it comes in the, car, in the car business. And, yeah. you know, obviously we understand that. They're getting a little bit of a, a kickback there from the banking or the loaning or the lending right. institution to be able to do that, to draw that interest. But I do the same thing. I said, I say, well, give me, give me the interest rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me how much you're saving me. And then I do the math, right? Yeah. How, how much am I going to pay in interest over the next three months? Uh-huh. Well, the first question I ask them is how much can I pay off in month one? Uh-huh. <laughs> because, yeah. Because yeah. I'll knock it down to a hundred dollars right. if yeah. I have to, right? Uh-huh. And then, then pay interest on that a hundred dollars. Uh, but that's a great idea uh, to take advantage of that. Cause typically it, every time I've done it, same thing. It has been a comma check difference yeah. um, in the savings on the price of the vehicle. So good advice there. All right. So on the wedding side of Amy's question, that timeline you would think would be a little bit easier, especially if you know the age of your child. Now, you don't know right. when your child is going to get married, but you know it's not going to be until X date, right? So if your child is younger, I mean, if you're really starting to think about saving for a child's wedding and they're 10, 11, 12 years old, and yes, I think investing it makes sense because you're probably at least on a 10-year time horizon, right? My daughter got married at 20, which is young by today's standards, just in January. So let me give you my example. Now, I had been saving and investing not specifically for her wedding, but for these intermediate goals, right? Mm-hmm. This was in a non-retirement account. Amy mentioned the, the, the accounts that don't have tax advantage status. So 
This was not for my retirement. This was, this was for generally whatever I've got to deal with in the future. And I shouldn't say I had to deal with the wedding. <laughs> deal what, with that. Whatever I, whatever I had to plan for uh, in the future. Grateful to do it. Great guy. And had no problem with, uh, with my new son-in-law. But I began to save and invest that money for a potential time horizon that I knew was down the line in the future. Now, when Abby, my daughter, began to get serious, and certainly by the time she got engaged, that money was out of the market right? It was on to the sidelines and into some CDs in my case, uh, and then eventually um, uh, a money market mutual fund uh, to get that. And and I was fortunate again that the interest rates were favorable, so I was still drawing some interest on that money. Well, it it went from a generic future need, whatever it might be, to a specific with a date need. Mm -hmm. And, And that's when you pulled the trigger on it. Yep. And put it aside because we knew we... And in, and in her case, you know, the other part about that is how much, right? How much do you save for the wedding? I had a budget in mind. We, we went at this a little bit differently than I think a lot of people do, rather than have a pile of money on the sidelines and then go ask the daughter how much they're going to need and piece that out over a certain amount of time. I told my daughter when she got engaged, I said, here is the budget. This is X amount for you to spend any way you like on preparing for your wedding. I put it into a joint bank account with her name and my name on it so that she could have the per- she could control the purse strings, right? I have oversight of it. I'm seeing it, but I had hands off on it. This was her deal. And I even told uh, her and her fiance at the time, if you guys choose not to blow the entire budget on the wedding, then you've got money for the honeymoon or you've got money to invest or yeah, you've got it's, money it's yours. for a car. Yeah. Yep. The money is handed to them to use as they see fit. So I thought it was a great financial lesson for them to learn to prioritize mm-hmm. and to budget. And it worked out well. They they came in a little uh, short of what, or they kept a little bit more than what they needed. Uh, so they used that for their honeymoon. So yeah. it worked out really well for them. And then I got to share that story with a client recently because he was in the same boat. He had a non-tax advantage account with us here that he had begun investing in growth mutual funds uh, and done it before he actually became a client here and told me, when he became a client here at Gen Wealth, that that money was for his daughter's wedding someday. Mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. was probably, I'm trying to think how long he's been a client, probably four years. So at that time, he didn't know when that time horizon was going to look like, but he'd been growing it for some period of time. Well, he talked to me last fall, same thing. My daughter's going to get engaged. Uh, the son, the son-in-law, future son-in-law came to talk to me over the holidays. He's telling me he's going to pop the question soon. What do we need to do? Yeah. Same thing with him. It's like, we, well, I, I can't help you on the what do we need to do with the wedding part. You're right. But the financial side was we need, we need to get out of these growth mutual funds. Right. And we need to park it into something safe to protect the principal, not put it at risk because we know that you're going to need it in a short, appear, short period of time. Scott, one of the things that we see people do with these types of future purchases or expenses like weddings and vehicles is many times they tend to mix this uh, with their emergency fund. Yeah. And and I will say for us, it is all in the same account currently, um, but it's not in, in our minds mentally, it is not the same dollars but because we I've got an Excel spreadsheet that I'm tracking for future purchases and for the uh, for the portion of it that is our emergency fund. And so at any given point, I can look at the overall balance of the account, but I also know 
what in that account is our emergency fund. Now, some people, if they if they did it that way, Scott, they would wind up dipping into their yeah. emergency fund for other things. Uh, we're just not wired that way. So for simplicity's sakes, it, it, it sake, it made it easier for us to have it all in one account that we're tracking. But whatever works for you to be able to keep that separate. Mm-hmm. And, and John and I talked about this last week with regard to emergency funds. That's got to be a baseline. And it's and the reason is the reason you don't dip unless it's an emergency. Main reason is, is because if you go below your threshold, you got to get it back there. Right. Yeah. You've got to find a way to get it back there. That's a minimum for sure. Great question, Amy. Spent a lot of time on it. Hopefully it was helpful to you. And if you've got questions, you can call or text them to us at the following number. Again, it's 501-381-5228. Whatever money-related is on your mind, just call, leave a voicemail, or shoot us a text at that number. You can also send an email to show at getreadyforthefuture.com, and maybe you'll hear your question answered on the air, just like Rick is about to from Little Rock. Here's the question. I can max out my 401k in Q1 this year. Would it be wise to put all of my earnings to 401k to max it out quickly or just stick to 10% and let it max out over the year? Well, here's the big deal with that, Rick, when deciding how quickly to max out your 401k during the calendar year is do you have a match? Because if you have a match... we got a different way of looking at this. Absolutely. And this is a game changer. Uh, Y'all, I I can't tell you how many times people do, especially if they have some variable income. If you're in sales, for example, and you have commissions that you can't really predict what you're going to make, a lot of times people will max out their contributions before the end of the year and they don't realize what they're missing uh, in, in that scenario. So let's go through an example here. Let's say somebody has a salary of $100,000 and they're 50 years old. So they're old enough to be able to do catch-up contributions and all of that. So $30,000 in Q1, the employer matches dollar for dollar up to 6%. So that's $1,500 in matching money in Q1, but no more for the rest of the year. Where if we had stretched out those contributions throughout the entire year, it would be $6,000 for the year. So that's $4,500 of difference just in that one calendar year. Now, if we do that for 15 years, so we get this 50-year-old to 65, over 15 years, just in free money with no growth on it, that's $67,500 of missed match money. Hmm. That's a huge difference. And if you assume just a 6% growth over that 15 years, that's $115,545. Hmm. It is important to stretch your contributions out throughout the entire year. Yeah. And let me, and let me take just a second to talk to employers too, because this is a, this is a way bigger of a headache than I think it needs to be. You yeah. know, I never realized until I got into uh, the financial services industry, what a big difference it makes. The fact that there's a discrepancy between the, what the IRS, how the IRS limits your contributions into employer plans and how the employer who runs those plans Mm -hmm. sets it up, right? Because you have to determine a percentage of your income that goes in on a systematic basis into that plan. The IRS sees it as a number, right? And we use 30,000. I actually looked it up before we went on the air. It's going up a little bit. It's Mm $30,500. If you're over 50 this year, uh, you'd be able to put that much into your plan, but you have to do the math to figure out how do you divide that out percentage-wise as a percentage of your income 
to reach that $30,000. So just a, I guess a shout out or maybe just a, a request for employers. I, I don't know how hard this is. I know bigger companies is probably darn near impossible. I don't know what kind of pressure it puts on payroll to try to figure this out. But if you're a small employer, especially set it up like, you know, here we have a simple yeah. IRA and we are allowed to say, I go into Tim and I say, I want to max out my simple IRA and he divides it out over 12 times and we're good, right? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a part, it's not a percentage of my income. And, and I'll say, I, cause I've sat in that chair from the business owner's perspective and I, and I know what our finance department um, has to do in the type of plan that we have and how our payroll is set up, it's really not that complicated. I mean, they're going to set it up either as a percentage amount or they're going to set it up as a set dollar amount. They've got to they've got to go in there and type something in anyway. So if you want it to be so that it is even, let's say you were going to contribute twenty four thousand dollars because that's super easy math. That's two thousand dollars per month, or if you're paid twice a month, that's a thousand dollars per paycheck. Be careful if it's bi-weekly. Keep in mind that that's 26 pay periods in a year's time instead of 24. But think through how do you make it a set dollar amount and still reach whatever your total goal is, whether you're maxing out full contributions or whatever amount, you still want to stretch those out throughout the calendar year. It's very important. Yeah, I have. And transversely, the other side of that equation in our household is is my wife, Sarah's job. She is in a little has a little bit of veritable comp. She's in a little bit of a sales position and she gets uh, bonuses at least a couple of times a year. So Mm -hmm. there's that variance requires us because her employer requires her to put in her 401k contributions as a percentage of income, I have to change it like three times, or we have to change it like three times a year yeah. to try to, you know, hit, play hit the game, the, play the game. <laughs> yeah. So we, we make sure that we're going to uh, get all of the match money. So it is a difficult thing, but it's something yeah. for on the employee side, I would certainly recommend you want to make sure that you're doing, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, look at the numbers, look at what we just showed you that it can make a huge difference in your overall savings at the end of your work life. Well, and that was just from a 50-year-old, from from age 50 to 65. Think about yeah. it over a career. Yeah. Y'all, it is, it's a huge game changer for people if they'll really pay attention to this. And Scott, I can't tell you how many times we have sat in client meeting rooms and had this conversation. When we see a statement from a 401k or their pay stubs and we realize what they've been doing mm-hmm. is maxing it out earlier and they really have no idea in most cases the impact that it makes. Yeah, I would I say congratulations to Rick for looking to max yes. out that 401k. That is a game changer. That catch up is not just a uh, word that should be thrown around lightly. It truly does, once you're 50 years old, allow you to catch up if you are behind on retirement savings. Uh, there's a lot you can get in there if you're willing yeah. to have the discipline to do it. And it can be a tax advantage, too, because obviously those dollars, we're assuming he's talking about a pre-tax 401k. There are Roth 401ks, but he didn't say that. So in a traditional 401k, you're putting those dollars in before they are taxed. So you're lowering your taxable income. And if you're maxing out with $30,000, that's a significant lowering yeah. of your taxable income. So it's an advantage now and a huge advantage later. Thanks to Rick for that question. A reminder, if you've got questions, call or text them to us at 501-381-5228 or send us an email. Send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. All right, this next question is from Barbara, and she writes to us, my mom just died on Sunday, and she has a reverse mortgage. Does the bank 
own it. Our condolences, Barbara, for sure, on the loss of your mother. The answer on this is really it depends because there's not there's going to need to be a transaction that takes place mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the, the 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 owner of the home who set up the reverse mortgage, which we're assuming that your mom did. If the heirs here need to sell the home, which is probably I would say. And, I, and, and full disclosure here, we have very little to no yeah, we, uh, experience with this. This is not something we're going to work on. We, we do not yeah. do reverse mortgages. Yeah. We see them from time to time, yeah. but we don't do reverse mortgages. So the assumption here for me is, is that I would assume that in most cases, the heirs are going to want to either sell the home or need to sell the home uh, for various reasons. But if some heirs have a lack of funds to pay off the loan balance, because that's what we're talking about here at the end of someone's life who had a reverse mortgage, there's going to be a loan balance that is due. They may need to sell the home to repay the reverse mortgage loan. If the loan balance is less than the home value, then you've got some equity and your heirs can use the sale proceeds to repay the loan and keep the difference. Now, if the balance owed on the loan is more than what the home is worth, your heirs would probably be looking at selling the home uh, anyway, but they could sell it for at least 95% of the current appraised value in order to pay off the home. And then the remaining balance of the loan would be covered by the mortgage insurance that the reverse mortgage borrower paid during the duration of the loan. But there may be some instances where the heirs want to keep the home. Yeah, so so if the heirs want to keep the home instead of selling it, then you would need to pay uh, pay off the rest of the loan uh, with some other source of funds. So you've got to look at whether or not that's an option for your family to be able to do. Uh, but that loan balance would need to be paid in full. And I will say on any reverse mortgage, uh, the devil's in the details yes. of those. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've kind of given some broad generalities here for you. But I think it's important for you to be in contact with the mortgage company as one of or the heir. I don't know if there if there are siblings involved or not, but you need to to be in contact with the mortgage company and get the information that you need to be able to understand the details of how what your mom set up is really going to work. Yeah. And Barbara is unfortunately having to deal with this in hindsight. It's it's nothing that she can do about it on the front end. But I think it would be worth uh, talking a little bit about how we view those reverse mortgages. You know, you, you see those, I would say behind gold, it is probably yeah. the most frequently advertised, uh, I won't call it a product, but option for retirees. And I, I would say this, it should be one of the last options. It, I, I'm not going to get on here and, you know, rail against reverse mortgages. I think in some cases it may be the thing people have to do, yeah. but it should never be a first, second, or third option. And and frankly, that's why we don't see it very often yeah. Is, yeah. is sometimes people will come in and ask us about them, but then we look at their situation and we're able to determine another route to go instead of that. A lot of times, Scott, uh, people are looking at this because they feel like they need another source of income during retirement and this allows them to do that. And so, again, in the right circumstances, we would say, you know, check it out and see what you need to do. But in most cases, uh, we're, we're just not fans of them uh, for, for a lot of reasons. But if somebody is able to um, early on start planning for retirement, and I say early, uh, that that's a very relative term. If they're able to start planning enough 
uh, you know, early enough in their lifetime that they don't have to go this route, then I wouldn't go this route. So just because a famous actor may tell you about reverse mortgages, don't don't go diving into one. And and the one thing that has perplexed me a little bit about it, too, is that it has to be driven or in most cases, I would think, by a desire to stay in that exact home. Because if you need the equity out of your home, there's a lot of different ways to do that yeah. as opposed to going into the reverse mortgage. Yeah, I you mean, can sell it, right? I mean, yeah, we we've seen people um, sell their home and then go to like a, a retirement. I don't want to say assisted living because it's more independent, but like a retirement community mm-hmm. where they're they're paying for meals and you know all of that kind of thing. That's always it's already prepared for them. So we've seen them utilize the equity from their home as the revenue stream for their future home in right. retirement. Yep. So obviously uh, something that Barbara has to deal with on the back end. But if you're thinking about that on the front end, get some advice from multiple sources. Uh, you, know, you can talk to a trusted banker. You can talk, talk to a, an attorney. You can talk to a financial advisor. I'd say talk to all three. Uh, and determine whether that's really right for you. You know, uh, one other PS comment here mm-hmm. on this, on the uh, when you said trusted banker, um, we actually reached out to a friend of ours uh, who's in the banking realm and actually deals with mortgages on a regular basis, and he does not do uh, reverse mortgages, just doesn't touch them even though he deals with mortgages regularly. So uh, it, you're you're going to be somewhat limited in the sources of advice you can get mm-hmm. who deal with this regularly. And you know, there's probably a reason for that. Yeah. Barbara, we want to thank you for reaching out at a tough time yes. we know in your family's life. We're going to call this the question of the week. And we thank you for reaching out with it. And for being named question of the week, we'd love to send you a free get ready for the future show Tumblr uh, for being that question of the week. We just need to know where to send it, and we need you to claim it. Send us an email, show at getreadyforthefuture.com. I actually had a, uh, a new client in uh, the Gen Wealth office here in West Little Rock earlier this week. He said, where can I get one of those tumblers? Those sound really nice. <laughs> I said, well, have you sent a question in? And he said, well, I ask you a bunch of questions. Does, does it that, doesn't that count? And I said, yes, it does. So we got him a tumbler. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. All right. If you do have a question, you can call or text them to us at 501-381-5228. Uh, or you can send an email to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. One final question on the show today. It's from Chet in Fayetteville. As a self-employed single-member LLC, what are the best available options for me to retire? I have a Roth IRA I maximize. What are more available options? You know, I think the first thing that jumps out at me in reading that question, when you say what are the best available options for me to retire, I would assess whether you've got some value in your business, right? Because yeah. that could be the best uh, yeah. If if you're going to plan to sell it and you have a, a, a path for that. But a lot of times with a self-employed single member LLC, they are the business. It, right. And I'll say as a business owner, uh, the value of the business is part of my retirement plan. But in addition to that, I am doing a you know more traditional retirement plan at Gen Wealth because we're not a single member LLC because we have multiple team members here. We have established a simple IRA, and that's basically a small business version of a 401k. So that's what I have to supplement the value of my business as a business owner as far as my retirement income is is planned, is concerned, rather. Um, One of the things we want to talk with you about, Chet, is a SEP IRA. And before I get into the details of that, I want to mention something on the SEP IRA and on the simple IRA. Scott, we have had people in the past who say, when we mention something that has IRA in the name of it, 
they will go, okay, but wait a minute, stop. I'm already doing a Roth IRA. So I don't think that I can do that as well. So which one should I do? I need you to understand that when we're talking about a SEP IRA or a simple IRA, even though it has IRA in the name of it, these are corporate retirement plans. So it is just like doing a 401k and a Roth or a 401k and a traditional IRA. It does not matter that it has IRA in the name of it. You're able to do, in this case, a SEP IRA and a Roth IRA simultaneously. So, Scott, you want to talk a little bit about the SEP? Yeah, the SEP is is probably, of everything we're going to talk about, the easiest and quickest to establish. So when he talked about best available options, it's definitely the quickest to access. You can set it up, and all you have to do is file, uh, or actually, you don't even have to file it. You just have to fill out and keep uh, well, you file it with you. You don't have to actually turn it into the IRS, but you you file a form uh, that says, I'm going to create a SEP IRA, and you've got it. And then you open the account somewhere, and it's self-directed. You can contribute up to 25% of your income annually. It is considered pre-tax. Now, I say when you contribute it, it is actually an employer contribution. So keep that in mind. The 25% of your employee income, so if your employer and employee you're getting 25% of your income put in by the employer side of your business. The cap there is $69,000. So it's 25% of your income up to $69,000. And then on the employer side, it helps both sides of the taxation equation, right? Because the employee is making a pre-tax contribution. The employer is making it for them. When withdrawals are made in retirement, they'll be taxed at ordinary income. Now, the key here, though, is because Janet mentioned the simple, which is what we have here at GenWealth, that's for multiple employees. The SEP would not be terribly advantageous to you if you had multiple employees right. because you have whatever you do for you, you have to do for everybody. So he, he does mention he's self-employed and a single member LLC might be a good option for him. So I'll go ahead and chase this rabbit for a minute for other people who are out there listening. Um, if it, it, some, Sometimes we will see a husband and wife who own a company together and they are both employees of that. So I don't want you to get focused on just like in Chet's case, he is a single member LLC. But if you've got a husband and wife, and you're contributing for a retirement plan for both of those, a SEP is still a good plan because you're going to contribute the same amount for both of them. And it's not like you resent contributing to, I mean, this is for your joint retirement in the future. Right Now, if you have people who are not family members or people who haven't been with the company very long, that's where a lot of people start as employers start getting uncomfortable with the SEP. It's like, well, I'm going to contribute, let's say 25% to mine, but this person just started, you know, last week, and I don't know if they're going to make it or not. You know, I, I don't really want to add that expense. So that's where a lot of people will kind of draw the line in the sand. But think about who they are. The other key on this is many uh, business owners, especially in a single uh, owner LLC, many people will pay themselves more in terms of a distribution yeah. than in terms of true W-2 income. This is going to be based off of your W-2 income. Mm. So consider that as you make this decision. Another option would be a solo 401k. Now, these are not as easy and quick to establish as the SEP IRA. There's a lot more reporting that goes on here. Uh, there's a lot more to establish it, but the contribution limits could be higher depending, again, on your income because the solo 401k is just like any other 401k. You've got uh, up to $23,000 a year that you can contribute if you're 
under 50. And if you're 50 or over, as we already talked about earlier in the show, that limit increases with the catch-up contribution to 30500 It allows for employee and employer contributions. So that's a key difference from the SEP. The total here cannot exceed $69,000, and it does, as we've already alluded to, require third-party reporting and probably more fees associated with that plan. Because you're setting up a 401k. It may just be for you, but you're setting up a 401k. You can save on taxes and can defer up to 100% of your income and still get a match. So you get both sides of that equation in the solo 401k. Anything else to add on that one? I think we're good on that. We'll go ahead and talk about a defined benefit plan a little bit. Um, So if you think about defined contribution versus defined benefit. So uh, we throw those terms around a lot, but I think a a lot of people who aren't in the industry hear them and don't really focus on what what the difference is. So the defined contribution we've talked about, like on the 401k, Scott mentioned the limits that you can contribute. So the contribution is defined by the IRS. They say you can't contribute more than 23000 unless you're 50 or older, then it's 30500 So that's what they have clearly defined. In the defined benefit, this is like a pension. So we're not saying here's what you can put into it, but we are saying here's what you're going to get out of it. So it's a different approach to funding this. There are a lot of, uh, of high-income earners that would benefit from this tremendously in terms of the discount that they would get on taxes. Yeah, generally speaking, you can get a lot more into that yeah. plan than you can going these other routes. So if that's something you're interested in exploring, Chet, or anybody else who heard that on the show today, give us a call, 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526 to find out more and to get started with your plan for true financial independence. Janet, you heard the bell in the I distance. Did. We, I did. We, we went right past the runway today. Yeah. So um, I, rather than a synopsis of the whole show, I'm just going <laughs> to go back to this defined benefit plan because okay. I feel like we're cutting that yeah. short a little bit. Um, if you're a high income earner, think people who do like real estate a lot, you know, and, and have significant income coming in from that. This is an opportunity. Scott, we have seen people save tens of thousands of dollars on their taxes simply by setting this up. And oh, by the way, not only are they saving taxes this year in doing that, but in the future, they're going to have additional income in retirement. So if you fall into that category of high income earner and nobody has talked to you about a defined benefit plan, give us a call 501-653-7355. Certain doctors, certain insurance agents who are considered self-employed, great options there for people like that. Uh, My final thought is we talk about financial independence all the time on this show, and we don't want your path to end just by at the end of this show. The next step for you would would be to get the seven steps to financial independence. It's a great brochure. It's a free uh, brochure for you. And you can get it by texting the word STEPS to 501-381-5228 or visit GetReadyForTheFuture.com forward slash steps. Or you can always email us and request it, show at GetReadyForTheFuture.com. And that's all the time we have for this week's Get Ready for the Future show. Our thanks to everybody who sent in a question this week. We hope uh, we gave you something to work on and some action steps to take. And if you have questions, call or text them to us at 501-381-5228. See you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building toward financial independence, share the podcast with your friends and family. The Gen Wealth Financial Team is available to you 24-7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial.